Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the latest Full Throttle Bikes podcast. And this week here at Eurosports, we're concentrating on silly season for World Superbikes, looking ahead to 2019. Greg Haynes with you. Julian Ryder will be with us as well in a few minutes' time as we discuss what is actually involved when it comes to negotiating a contract for next year and perhaps as well the seasons beyond that. Let's just bring ourselves up to speed though with what's happening so far in World Superbike City Season 2019. Jonathan Ray is three-time world champion and fast closing in on a fourth title. He is the man who sets everything in motion, which he's done now by re-signing with Kawasaki Racing Team for 2019 and 2020 with an option for 2021. Who might join him? Michael van der Mark was a possibility, and so was Toprak Razgatioglu, who it sounds like Ray and the Provec team may have preferred. However, the final say goes not to Provec, not to KRT, but Kawasaki Japan, and they are pushing for their Suzuka 8-hour rider Leon Haslam, currently the BSB Championship leader, to be Ray's teammate next year. Will that just be for 2019 before Toprak comes in for 2020? Or can Haslam perhaps get a two-year deal? Whatever, it would make sense in many ways. Haslam is Suzuki teammates with Jonathan Ray this year, and they've been Honda World Superbike teammates before as well, so they know each other well. Toprak, in the meantime, stays with the private Pachetti Kawasaki team for 2019. Another rider who will have Kawasaki aspirations is Eugene Laverty, who was so close to joining them for the 2017 season before Sykes renewed his deal at the last minute. So where does all this leave the 2013 world champion Tom Sykes? Nowhere at the moment. He'll be looking to join somebody like Sean Muir Racing or possibly the Jansanti Racing Team, GRT, which is set to step up to World Superbike from World Supersport with a couple of Yamahas. Sean Muir's team, SMR, are almost certain not to run Aprilius, so Sean Muir will want a factory BMW deal or maybe run a couple of the new V4 Ducatis. Aruba Ducati will certainly have the new V4, and it's looking likely that Chas Davis will stay, possibly with Melandri or maybe with somebody like Laverty. There's also been talk around the paddock since even before the current season started that the Motor Corsa team might run a couple of V4 Ducatis as well. One would be for Lorenzo Zanetti, their current rider who's racing in the Italian Championship. And of course, he's the man who's been testing the V4 Ducati all across this year. Yamaha will keep Alex Lowe's and very likely Vandermark as well. 
Honda is yet to officially confirm Leon Camia, but he will stay, while his teammate is almost certainly not going to be Jake Gagne, who's already crashed 11 times this year. Anybody else could be on that bike alongside Camia, but team manager Kervin Boss insists they want a world superbike rider and not somebody from MotoGP. In his words, the MotoGP riders generally don't have the right attitude and expect their own little wardrobe, whereas WSB is more basic and how it should be. Not mixing his words there. Altea are in a similar situation to SMR in that they need to know what bike they'll have before they can start finalising riders. MV Augusta? Well, will they even stay on the grid? Possibly not, as they're in Moto2 next year with forward racing, although the Ripato Corsi team is a private one, so you never know. As for the smaller teams towards the back of the grid, well, as usual, anything can happen there, especially as a few of them rely on really big money deals from the riders, which could mean, quite frankly, anybody's on their bikes. Whatever happens, it's a big contract year at the sharp end, and we should expect some rider announcements around Mizano this weekend. Then comes the long, long summer break, but you can be sure that several riders' mobile phones will be ringing on the beach and by the swimming pool as the last arrangements are put into place for 2019. So Jules, first of all, we're just digesting the Grand Prix yesterday at Assen. That really was classic <laughs> Assen, wasn't it? It was wonderful. I've always loved Assen. Despite the modifications, it's still one of the greatest racetracks we go to. And when it produces racing like that, actually in all classes, mm. what's not to love? I guess what we mustn't forget, though, is the fact that Mark Marquez has extended that championship lead. He's sneaky. It was a great way to do it, but he has extended the lead. You ended up with the sneaky feeling that he was sandbagging all along. Yeah. And he had that extra half a second in him. Yeah, it was a... Yeah. I mean, and the rest did, did what they had to do, which is try not to let him get anywhere, try and beat him up a bit, try and knock him out of his rhythm. Uh, and it didn't work. It was kind of Rossi-esque from the early days, wasn't it, when he used to play around with them a bit? Uh, yeah, well, in the early days of the first couple of years of Mada Grand Prix, when yeah. yeah, the V5 Hondas were ten times better than anything else out there. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, uh, <laughs> but at the moment, that... Honda is not 10 times better than anything mm, out there. True. If anything, it's struggling to be equal with some of the other stuff out there, which makes uh, Marquez even more amazing. And what's it like for you, Jules, now? Have you really got into the, into the rhythm of not being there? Do you feel a bit strange when you watch a race like that? Sort of wish you were at Assen. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, but I wished I was at Assen because I love Assen. Yeah. But I had no desire to be at Manchester Airport at, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning on Thursday. <laughs> Or indeed at Schiphol yeah. about now true. on the Monday morning afterwards yeah, in, in the uh, two-hour queue for uh, security. <laughs> oh, Schiphol used to be an absolute nightmare. I think it still is sometimes, actually, isn't it? It can be. It can be. Yeah. Although, then again, on the other hand, you have been to Stetterton with us at Eurosport earlier this year. And just before we started recording the podcast, we were having a chat about that. It was a good weekend, wasn't it? Stetterton, well, BSB is such a good championship. There is no question. Really impressive paddock. Um, accessible in terms of access for the fans as well as affordability. And we all know you get a lot of racing for your money from classy fields. Yeah. What's not to love, again? And every single race does seem to be close. That's the truth of it. Yeah. yeah. A, a really well-run championship. You know, you have to give credit to MSV, Stuart Higgs and the boys. That is, you know, 
what Stuart said when I interviewed him in back at Easter, their reference point is the golden days of World Superbike, of Carl Fogarty at Brands Hatch. Yes. That's what they're trying to bring back. Yeah, and wasn't that good. That's what they look at. And they are doing a cracking job, I've got to say. Yeah, no, it was great, and uh, hopefully we'll have you back with us later on in the year. But silly season, as we said at the top then, um, it's always a strange time of the year. First of all, Jules, I mean, you've been around in the paddocks a long time now. <laughs> Why does it seem to be that silly season comes earlier every year? Good question. It's always been earlier than you think. It's just <laughs> yeah. announcements aren't made, weren't made until later. Yeah. And it used to be that you, you used to reckon that Assen, which used to come after the eight hour, was when all the deals were announced. Because then the Japanese factories had stopped worrying about the eight hour and been totally preoccupied about the eight hour and could get back to worrying about Grand Prix. But now, what did Lynn Jarvis They were in July now, aren't we? Just. Yeah, just. Really, the factories had to know by the end of June what they are doing, what bikes they're making, what, you know, um, uh, crews had to be put in place, what planning has to be done for next year. Mm. It's just mu- it's that much more complicated now. Um, and th- that's one of the reasons people are hopping up and down waiting for the Yamaha announcement. Uh, Lynn Jarvis said that he needs to, I think 26th of June, I think he said, was when the factory needed to know what they were doing in terms of getting the motorbikes out for the first test in November. And I suppose uh, the technicians, the crew chiefs and everyone else on that level will want to know who their rider is as soon as possible as well, won't they? So they can get to work. I know they can't always test with them if they're contracted to somebody else, but I suppose they would like to, it's better to know sooner rather than later. Well, you'd like to know where you're working next year. Exactly. And indeed, if you're working next year. (laughs) You know, there's there's a lot of that. You just uh, it's the lead time for the organisation and for the construction and manufacturing. So, if we look at let's say World Superbike, for example, that seems to all be getting into more of a rhythm now. Now that Jonathan Ray, the world champion, has triggered the the start, the starting gun for the city season, it seems to be all go, doesn't it? But until he did that, there was nothing really. It's always like that, Greg. The, there's always one piece that has to fall into place. Yeah. Normally, the big boy. Mm. And once he has decided what he's doing, then there tends to be a sudden uh, rush of um, yes, uh, of the rest uh, scrabbling to fall into place. You know, you don't want to be left standing up when, when the music stops. Because I guess in someone like Ray's case or Marquez in MotoGP or a shaky burn in BSB, they can more or less go wherever they want, can't they, you would imagine? Yeah, you would say so. I mean, if you're a team manager in any paddock, you're in dereliction of duty if you're not trying to tap up the best riders there are. Yeah, exactly. You know, you'd always have a conversation. Yeah. Maybe not with the man himself, but certainly with a manager or a mate or a friend or a known conduit. Yes. <laughs> you know, his dad. I don't know, you know, so, yeah, why, you know, what do you consider? Yeah. Uh, um, you know, otherwise you're not doing your job, are you? This is why it's always interesting when, Somebody says, well, yes, we're talking to Suzuki and Yamaha. Well, of course you are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You'd be an idiot if you weren't <laughs> talking to everybody. That's one of those lovely little bits of um, distraction, managers especially, throw into, the, um, throw into the mix at this time of year. You know, well, we're talking to Yamaha. 
Yeah, they might have probably just sod off, but we've been talking to them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it always makes me laugh when people put headlines together in articles about the fact that such a tour might be going on, because like you've said, well, of course it's going to be going on. The question is at what level and yeah. how long? Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, yeah, of course. I mean, if you were in World Superbike, I mean, you'd be trying to tap up Chaz Davis, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. You really would. Because the suspicion there is there's a rider who could win the world championship. And let's, let's remind ourselves what a, a team manager's job is, which is not to find the next quite good bloke <laughs> or the next nice man from um, the country you like. It's to win the world championship mm. or to find the next world champion if you're a satellite team or a feeder team, you know? So, you know, of course, you're going to be madly trying to find out how much Chaz Davis wants to ride your motorbike. So how would that typically work, Jules? What would happen there? Would, would you normally get the team manager or somebody from the manufacturer contacting the rider's manager? Would they prefer to chat with the rider themselves in person or a bit of both? Uh, a bit of both. It depends completely. Yeah. I mean, the, whole, the, the shock Jorge Lorenzo move mm. appears to have been triggered by Jorge just saying, why don't we phone Alberto? Now, I don't for one minute think Lorenzo got his mobile out and dialed himself. Hell, I don't know, he might have done, but he has people for that. You know, it's, um, who knows? It's, it's all those conversations you used to see behind trucks, you know, or yeah, somebody yeah. coming out of a hospitality suite at half past 10 in the evening. You go, what's he doing in there? Exactly, yeah. You know, there's, there, there, there's all the usual. It's village gossip. It could be anyway. There's no rules about this. Good God, it could be conducted entirely by email, for all we know, mm. or on a WhatsApp group. Yeah, which it probably <laughs> so is in some don't cases. Have to move. Yeah. Although, what, I yeah. have to say, what does surprise me sometimes is how much you do see people talking in the paddock. I guess some of it's theatre, yeah. but it is, it's almost surprising so much, oh, yeah, you know, how much does actually happen in the paddock and not behind closed doors. Yeah, well, some of it, of course, might be demonstrating to your current employer that you're serious. Indeed, yeah. But, you know, unless I get a rise, mate, I'm off. Yeah, and we've seen some real shocks, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. Again, <laughs> if I was Chaz Davis, I'd be saying to Ducati, we've got a new bike that's going to take a year to develop. Mm. You want me to stay and really not have a chance for the world title? You're going to need to pay me very well to do that. Yeah, because in Chaz's case, he's, he's had to do that already once before, and it hasn't exactly worked out as they wanted, has it? No, and, and you'd be looking at that very hard, wouldn't you? If you're Chaz mm. and, and his manager, you'd be um, either casting a glance in the direction of, I don't know, Yamaha would be the obvious place, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, as a, you know, that's just pulling a name out of the hat on a bike that looks competitive. Uh, you'd be looking at that and thinking, hmm. Uh, and then you'd be going back to the Cathy saying, look, mate, unless you want me jumping ship, you're going to have to up the wages. But if you're Ducati, you already have one rider you don't pay, Marco Melandri. Yes. In, in order to be able to afford to pay Chaz the money you need to pay him. So just to clarify, so got, just to clarify that, Jules, sorry, but for anyone who's listening to this Full Throttle podcast on, let's say, Spotify, for example, and they've just come across the show and they're listening in and thanks for listening in, yeah, yeah. and they're thinking, why is Mark Melandri not being paid? He's a, you know, he's a world champion in Grand Prix racing. He's won multiple races. Why is he not being paid? How can that be? Because he's not going to win the world championship. And is that because of age? Partly. Mm. Um, but you know, he's, you know he, he has to get his money from bonuses 
uh, from his boots, leathers, helmet people and personal sponsors. Uh, right. Ducati cannot afford to pay or the, you know, the superbike budget, and Ducati's a small company, let's not forget. Mm. You know, they cannot afford to pay what you need to pay Chaz to keep him. And let's face it, Chaz has been, you know, Ducati's spearhead for years. Uh, yes. And you can't afford to pay another star. If Melandri gets arsy, he's out the door, and Michael Rubens Rinaldi's on it because they've already got him on a three-year contract. Yeah, indeed. And also, that is directly you know, related, in their case, to the MotoGP projects as well, is it not? In terms of rider budgets, yeah. Exactly. Um, and, you know, again, Ducati is... World Superbike is always a distraction. Yes. If you're Japanese, you know, HRC do not like World Superbike. There is not an HRC sticker on that mm. Fireblade. No, absolutely not. It's... It is regarded as a distraction from the real job of winning Grand Prix. Yes. At Yamaha, they, they were not interested in the R1 at all until the eight hour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you could regard a lot of uh, what goes on as a test bike for the eight hour. Remember when you used to have in British Superbike, you had Keo riding a Fireblade on Bridgestones, on Michelin's, uh, Michelin's, I mean. What was that then? I'll tell you what it was. It was the test bike for the eight hour. Yeah, it's, that is an interesting one. It's like the CEV as well on a slightly smaller scale. It, all the Moto3 teams use that as a test bed, don't they? They've got less uh, strict testing regulations in the Junior World Championship. Absolutely, yeah. It, it, the, the, the regulations are much less restrictive. Mm. First time I saw a twin-exhaust Honda Moto3 bike, <laughs> it was some kid from the CEV doing a wild card. <laughs> because he was at Aragon. And because it was a wild card, he was allowed to ride his CV bike. Yeah, which, yeah. You know, he wasn't. He didn't have to conform to the you know number of engines, blah blah blah. Which also explains why these Moto Three riders are so hot as soon as they get to the World Championship because they know the bike better than all the other riders already there, don't they? Because they've been riding it in the CV. <laughs> well, no. Well, the, the CV is a professional championship. Yes. If you get a ride on a Moto Three bike in the CV. You've probably been a works rider for three years, four mm, years, mm. and started ten years ago. Unlike, let's say, Red Bull rookies, when you might not have ridden a bike with a clutch until you went to the test. Yeah, yeah, that's a big difference, isn't it? There's a big difference between, well, you know, you know, I, I, I get annoyed with people say, "Oh, well, obviously you want to do the CEV, don't you?" Because that's they're better when they arrive, not Red Bull rookies. Well, of course they are. They're factory <laughs> riders. Yes. You know, yeah. just, you know, it's where they start from in those championships you need to uh, look at. What's also becoming significant now, though, is Suzuka. You mentioned that before, and you're a big Suzuka man. That's now, with this Leon Haslam situation, and KRT don't have so much choice. It's Kawasaki Japan who has the choice. They're backing Leon Haslam to be Jonathan Ray's teammate mostly because of his Suzuka achievements with them. It's, again, showing just how important Suzuka is, isn't it? Uh, it, it, it? It's getting back to what, not quite to the glory days of when yeah. everybody had more money than sense, but, you know, it is close. Now, a lot of your stars, Grand Prix riders even, are being hoiked in to do the ATAR, as in the old days. Mm. We have a factory Honda out this time. Good to see Leon Cambio on it. Yes. Um, and I'll tell you why that is as well, because when Leon went first to the ATAR, he rode a Moriwaki Honda, uh, 
Mm. Um, this was years ago when there weren't that many overseas blokes, non-Japanese, doing the eight hour. And the star that was coming over there was Christopher Mullen. Mm. And he was the star, you know, overseas man coming in to do the eight hour. And Leon kicked his backside on a Moriwaki Honda and really impressed the Japanese first time they saw him. And it seems to me as well as it was like the Japanese, when they latch onto a rider, when they love a rider, there's no going back, is there? Well, old man uh, Midori Moriwaki told me that her dad was seriously impressed with Leon. Oh, really? <laughs> seriously impressed. And if you're impressing Mamoru Moriwaki, yes. um, you're doing okay, aren't you? <laughs> that reminds me a bit of uh, Freddie Spencer as well, with Pops, as he called him, Mr. Honda. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, it, you know, once he loved him, he was like, almost like a son to him, wasn't he, for a while? That's it. There, there is that Japanese, you know, sort of um, the way the Japanese work. Uh, and they, and Leon is, we all know Leon's a good rider. In my opinion, he's, you know, if there's a rider who has not won what he should have won, given his talent, application, way he goes, etc., it's Leon Cameron yes. out of the Brits. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a great admirer of uh, Leon Cameron. And what do you make of the Haslam situation with him perhaps joining Jonathan Ray? Um, I, because there's lots of other contenders, you know, what's your opinion on it? I think, uh, I think you're right. Uh, eight hours, it'll be regarded maybe as a bit of a reward for the eight hour and it'll be keeping the feet warm for top rack. Yeah, I think so too. I think the question now is whether Leon Haslam can manage to bag a one-year deal or a two-year deal. I, I would imagine he's strongly going for a two-year deal, isn't he? And I can imagine that Kawasaki is saying, hmm, one-year deal. <laughs> Yes, yeah, while well, Top Rack's waiting in the wings, yeah. Yeah, would, would be my guess at that. That's the feeling I get. I yeah. mean, you know, obviously Top, obviously top Rack uh, is the, is, uh, they've got an eye on their future superbike rider. And they've, I, I was almost surprised they left him uh, where he is for another year. Mm, especially considering he's already contracted directly to Kawasaki and not to the Pachetti team. I was surprised about that too, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, the other one, Jules, that's a strange one, is, is Tom Sykes. I mean, we've got ourselves into a situation now in World Superbikes where right at this very moment, it would appear as though we have a world champion who's left out high and dry with nothing for next uh, year. And that is not something that happens often. Hey, you know, there's a lot of it about. There's, there's a lot of good riders, not many good motorbikes or not many motorbikes or teams you want to be in. Um, yeah, that's true. I say again, he's, he's been a world champion, but he has really been given a bit of a beating by Jonathan Ray, hasn't he, this year? Um, like I said, you know, who said it's fair? Mm, mm. The team manager's job is not to get the next quite good bloke or good man or, you know, it's the, the, it's the next man who could, uh, you know, do something about beating Jonathan Ray. Yeah, and true. at the moment, Tom Sykes is not that bloke. And they do say at the end of the day, you do your talking on the track, don't they? Because it's the results that do the well, talking, really. Yeah, yeah, that, that, this is it, and he's had a, you know, he's had a bad year. Yeah. I think we can agree on that. Mm, unfortunately, yeah. It's not, you know, it, it's not been to the level of where you expect him to be. No, 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 no. Um, you know, it's um, so. As far as you know, if I was, it, Tom might not want to, you know, ride for a second division team, as it were. Not interested. He's been a factory rider for a long time. Uh, but if you're a second division team, you might be thinking, hello, I could pick up a decent bloke here. Yeah. You know, for, for not much money. 
Yeah. You know, sort of second division and not much money. I doubt that's in Tom Sykes' vocabulary. No. It, I suppose it's going to depend on what he wants to do now. Does he want to carry on? Does he not? Some people are talking about BSB. Um, Some people say, no, he won't go back there now. But, I mean, you just don't know, do you? Well, you know, you, you, you might eye up the American champion. Yeah. Which he would obviously have a chance of winning. You know, and then that's, you know, where, where Tony Elias has had, you know, had a quite astounding rebirth of his career. And he'll be making good money there as well, won't he? Because at the end of the day, that's a big part of this. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, in real life and truth, you've actually got to make a living. Yeah. You know, this, this, this is the, um, the other part. You have a short period of your life where you can earn really good money. Yeah, true. Um, and so you've got to think about, you know, once you're, let's say, 35, how are you going to live for the rest of your life? And that usually requires quite a, quite a, few, quite a few quid in the bank. Yeah, because I guess a lot of these riders don't even think about that, do they? They live for riding. They ride from when they're a kid. They ride, ride, ride. And then all of a sudden, bang, one day, oh, no ride. What do I do now? What's this? Well, that's, yes. Well, there is a, I mean, ex-professional sportsmen are yeah. um, really the, the percentages when you see the literature about uh, ex, across all sports who get into trouble with lack of, with money, uh, with substance abuse, you know, whatever. It's a massively high, and, the, you know, the, this is where a proper management system yeah, yeah. is vital in making sure that once you uh, get off the, you know, the, the adrenaline drug of being, a, being an international motorcycle racer, that you're at least, at least financially stable. Yeah, and we've we've heard a few stories about people who've had issues before in in bikes and car racing. To be fair, haven't we? If you look at the James Hunt situation, that's a famous one. Well, a, 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 yeah. any professional yeah. sport, any professional yeah. sport, ex footballers, you know, really, you know, if you've been a, you know, clocked out the game in your mid twenties when your knees give up or something, it can be very very difficult. Yeah, because emotionally, it must be. A, Unbelievable, because I suppose, really, the public are not interested in yesterday's man either. You know, you're a forgotten man in many ways then. No. I, I mean, cricket as well. You know, there's been a couple of very good books yeah. by ex-cricketers who had serious battles with depression. Yeah, because I suppose you, one moment you've you got, you got the, the you know, heat of the know, action it, and the focus of the world's media on you, and all of a sudden there's nothing. Yeah, yeah. You wake up and there's nothing to do. Yeah. It is... It, it needs... It needs preparation, yeah. which is why, I mean, Keith Hewin, who I commentated on for years, was the example of a bloke who, you know, giving up racing, he knew it was coming, and when he gave up racing, he was mm -hmm. already a partner in an automatic transmission yeah, business, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, yeah. you know, he knew there was life after racing. He didn't find it easy, as he'll tell you, I don't think anybody does, but at least there was something else there, making him get up in the morning and go to work. And I guess what motivated Keith at that point was seeing friends in the past having troubles, and he didn't want that himself, did he? Obviously, I, 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 I think he was, a, you know, pretty self-centred on, on this sort of thing. You know, it's right. You know, he was intelligent enough to know there was life after racing. Yeah, yeah, and to not pretend. Yeah, that uh, you know it, it, uh, that it would just oh, it'll be fine. No, it's not. You have to prepare. Yeah.
It's, yeah, 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 exactly. Fa- uh, failing to plan is planning to exactly. fail, isn't it? Just before we go, Jules, I was, <laughs> I was keen to ask you, you know, as I said before, you, you've seen a lot of different formats and riders and races and championships over the years. What's your feeling at the moment on the feeder championships we have into World Superbikes, into British Superbikes, into Grand Prix racing? There are a lot of them, aren't there? There's no getting yeah. away from that. Are there too uh, many? I, I don't think so, no. I mean, I think... Um you have things like Red Bull Rookies, Shell Asia, British Talent Cup, where you can get in at a very, when you haven't done that much and your parents haven't had to spend an absolute fortune. You know, you can go to the audition and uh, if you look like you've got some promise, yeah, yeah. you're in. And we need you know, as wide a spread of them as possible. Yeah. Um, and then, hopefully, those championships, if you're good in that, they'll sneak you into the Junior World Championship. Yes. As a wild card a couple of times. If you're good enough then, you get a, a full-time ride in the Junior World Championship. And if you're good enough there, you get a couple of wild cards in Moto3. Yeah, and to be fair, I guess that's yeah. where, where Dorna, for example, as a company, they have a lot of ex-riders working for them. Alberto Puig has been with them, Greg Levia, people like that. Yes. Uh, I guess that helps, doesn't it, as these talent spotters. Jeremy McWilliams is another one. Yeah, I mean, you need, you know, you need, ex, yeah, it, it's ex-riders who look at a kid and go, ah, oh, you know, something there. Yeah. I mean, the first of these championships really was the, the Telefonica a movie star in the late 90s. Yeah, the Academy, uh, yeah. That found yeah. Tony Elias, Juan Olive, Danny Pedroza, Casey Stoner rode in it. Yeah. And Danny Pedroza wasn't the fastest, but Alberto Pooch, had, and the prize, by the way, for winning the Telefonica was you'd be in the Grand Prix team next year, the 125cc Grand Prix team. And Pooch said, I don't care what happens... But that kid, Pedroza, is coming whether he wins or not. Mm-hmm. Because he just saw something. Well, he was right, wasn't he? <laughs> because he, he, he saw it and he knew what he was looking at. Now, there's, I don't know if this is true or not because I never asked him, but I was told that Danny Pedroza had never ridden a bike with a gearbox before he went to the audition. Mm, I heard that. I would imagine it's probably true, isn't it? It could be, just with twist and go, you know, on the yeah, um, yeah. mini, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> and the audition was on a one, two, five Honda. Uh, you know, that is, you need it. I mean, Danny Pedroza's dad, you know, that's not a, that's not a family with money. No, 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 no. Uh, and maybe, okay, maybe in Spain, because of the structure of the domestic championships, blah, 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 he would have been picked up in the same way that Mark Marquez was. Julio Marquez, Mark's dad, drive, drove a digger for a living. Mm. Now, that doesn't give you the sort of disposable income to run a motorcycle racing team. No, 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 it doesn't, does it? But it is interesting, I think, the way the climate is in Spain and, you know, kids are out on, you know, everyone's got scooters, haven't they, in Spain? It is a different culture and it definitely makes a difference. Oh, I, I think so. It's your, you know, in, in, in a rural area, like in France, Yeah. you know, your first moto becan, your first little 50cc yeah, exactly. uh, moped, freedom. Uh, yes. All yeah, of a sudden... Yeah. You you know you have your you have mobility, uh, and I think there's still a, a bit of that that feeds into the culture that everybody ro- at some point in their life 
rode a little 50cc pop pop. Yeah, which I guess then you can say the climate has a big a big say in that, can't you? Because I think it's not a coincidence that there are a lot of very quick Spaniards and Italians who come up through these championships and the culture they have and, and do get to the top. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the, the Italian... Um, so again, you look at... They're all from the, the, the uh, Costa Moto. Yeah. You know, the Adriatic coast. Yes. And Marco Melandri, I seem to remember, was found by Loris Reggiani, who used to hang around the uh, you know, those little go-kart tracks in every seaside town where mini-moto racing happened. Yeah, they're all, yeah, and, they've all got uh, one. Again, the conversation went, you, come here, you know. Yeah. Have you ever ridden on a proper racetrack? No. Well, come up to Mizano on Tuesday. Come up to Mizano on Tuesday. We'll see <laughs> yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> that's, you know. Yeah. yeah. And it is like that. It actually yep. does happen that's, sometimes, you know, isn't it? That's how it happens. And there's a, you know, that whole, and that whole coast <laughs> has a, you know, a go-kart track and a mini-moto race going on every weekend. Yeah. You know, your bike was probably prepared by um, Pasani's dad. <laughs> Yes, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is all concentrated in that area. So last thing then, what about the British situation, Jules? What's the latest there? We, uh, we've had Cal Crutchlow over the last few years as our top performer on the Grand Prix scene. How's it looking, though, for the next five, ten years? Well, I'm delighted that Bradley Ray is going to the eight-hour. Yes, yes. On, uh, with the, uh, the Work Suzuki team. This is some big... You know, some decision makers. The sort of Japanese executive who doesn't carry a business card. He's so important. Um, Will, you know, who don't turn up to racetracks week in, week out. They cast the eye over. Mm, yes, yeah. Quoting Aguma-san, the old warlord of HRC in the Gardner days. You know, the, if you wish to be a factory rider, the eight-hour is an examination you must Pass. Yeah, absolutely, and and that's what Brad's. I, and I, I wrote in a in a feature I wrote in Bike Magazine that I hope Suzuki did drag him over to the eight hour. Not not just because he's going to go quick, but the Japanese fans would love Bradley Ray. Oh, you know, big tall lad with thick glasses. Yes, silly, yes. silly haircut, perma smile. They will absolutely love him, and he will love them. Oh, yeah, they'll be making Bradley Ray cookies and all sorts of things, won't they? I suppose it shows again, though, it does show again, doesn't it, just how important production-based racing still is, and and BSB as well. Well, it it, it shows, you know, we can't... Prototype racing is too expensive to have at domestic level. Yeah. You know, that's... You can't. Unless somebody is going to make, um, again, TZ... 250, 350s, RS125 Hondas, RG500s, which isn't going to happen. No, yeah. Um, I, I, I think the the big step, now that Moto2 is changing to Triumph engines, there is going to be a decent pool of ex-Grand Prix chassis around. Yeah, a lot of them. Yeah. All of a sudden, you know, because there is the Japanese factories are at the best ambivalent about Supersport 600-class motorcycles. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in Europe, because licensing has sort of cut them out of the public per- purchase. Um, they're not popular. Nobody buys the damn things anymore. So why would anybody race them? No, no. Or make them, rather. Yeah. Uh, and affordable Moto2, ex-Moto2 chassis to 
plug that gap between Moto3 and superbikes as classes raced on slicks, I think could be a very interesting yes. development over the next year or three. And you can see a lot of those Honda Moto2s ending up in the British paddock, can't you? Quite a few of them anyway. Well, there's a few there already. Josh Owen yeah. is riding one in Super Sport. Exactly, yes. Uh, yeah. Which is uh, Tom Lutie's bike from last year. Well, mm. I mean, again, that just proves it, doesn't it? A world championship caliber machine from last year in the Grand Prix scene. He's now in the British paddock racing around Cadwell Park and Stefan yeah. and places like that. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and th that, I would assume, this the Owens team would have had to spend a lot of money to buy that motorbike. Oh, yes. What is, you know, but next year when it's redundant at Grand Prix level, and again, to quote a feat of my interview with Stuart Higgs, what we need is 25,000, sorry, he said 25,000 euro motorbikes. Yeah. Not, not 75,000 euro motorbikes. Mm. Yeah. But the, 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 the GP2 bikes in, in the British paddock, you know, they're running around still with those gutless Honda engines. You know, it, it is as came from the Grand Prix paddock. It's a CVR600RR motor with no electronics and a very low-tuned Supersport kit on it. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, there must be a lot of phone calls going on at the moment. You know, the two teams. Or, you know, what are you doing with your bikes next year? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, no doubt teams will... I know enough, you know, Moto2 teams will be very happy to... Yeah. Uh, get a few quid back on an old Calyx. Yeah, exactly, because they'll still, still be going for a few bob, won't they, those? But they, yeah, absolutely. I mean, but that, that's going to be, there is suddenly a pool of affordable race yes. motorcycles. And, you know, you look at it again, Moto3, GP2, Superbike. For me, that's the model of a domestic championship. Well, that's exactly what Stuart Higgs is doing now, isn't it? I mean, they're smart people there, there's no doubt about it. The, the, well, Stuart Higgs, who, who said this to me back at Easter, you know, that the, um, and his phrase was the ambivalence of the Japanese factory yeah, yeah. to the Supersport 600 class means yes. you have to start planning about how you're going to fill that gap. And that's where the, the really successful championship promoters do gain their success, isn't it? They're looking ahead because otherwise it will catch up with them and it'll be too late. Well, Yep, I mean that—that's it. Complacency is the enemy of um, yeah. uh, of keeping something like that running as it should, or as popular as it is, or as uh, relevant as it is to to, to the um, to the public. And I, you know, the thing is, I think that that Calex that Josh Owens is belting around Snetterton on, and that's the place where the you know where <laughs> you want the top end. He said to me that you know you go nowhere below ten thousand RPM. He worked that out very quickly. But, you know, compared to Jack Kennedy's R6, it's a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah, true, true. Okay, well, look, Jules, I won't keep you on for too long because we've been yeah. going on for a long time, but I suppose I'd better ask you before you go, your initial feelings, uh, Marquez and Lorenzo, teammates on the same bike, what's going to happen there? <laughs> oh, God, I'm <laughs> looking forward to seeing that. Um, but I mean, my first thought, and I tweeted this just about 10 seconds before Jorge signed, I said, can't happen. If, he, you know, if the Ducati is too physical and yeah. uh, unsettled for him, <laughs> what the hell is he going to think when he gets on the Honda? Yeah, it's the Honda, yeah. <laughs> you know, if ever there was a motorbike that was built not for Jorge Lorenzo, <laughs> it's the Honda. So, 
that, you know, what? <laughs> That's, that is going to be, you know, what? there's a lot of questions that are going to need to be answered. Yeah. They really are. Yeah. Yeah, and on a personal level as well. I mean, he's, he's definitely going into Mark's team, isn't he? So it'll be very interesting to see how that pans out. It's, I don't know how that's... Very, you have yeah, to think Marcus has the upper hand at first. That is very interesting. And uh, and the way Jorge rode and Aston at the weekend in the early stages when he still had tyre and everything, you know, he, he, he put some... Um, he put some tough moves on people. Yeah, that was a confident Horgay dishing it out again. That was that was two fifty Horgay getting yeah, back. Yeah, I was just yeah. You know, for doing dreadful things to Alex DeAngelis. Yes, yeah. I was just going to say the, the Jorge of old is back, isn't he? He yeah. really is. Not that he was ever gone. Yeah, and it's glorious yeah, to see. Not that he was ever gone, but indeed the confidence has uh, increased again. It, it absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> well, there's a lot to look forward to, and Jules, that's been a, a very interesting chat. I think there's a lot for us to think about now over the next few weeks. So thanks very much. Thanks, thanks, Greg. Always a pleasure. Well, Murray Walker always used to say that anything can happen in motor racing, and it usually does. And it seems as though that's the case more off the track than it is on the track in the World Superbike Championship at the moment, doesn't it? But don't forget, we have a real weekend of Superbike racing coming up on Eurosport 2 and on the Eurosport player. All of the live World Superbike coverage from the Riviera de Rimini round at Mizano and all of the latest British Superbike coverage. Matt Roberts and the team will be there at Knock Hill in Scotland as Leon Haslam looks to claim more podium credits, moving ever closer all the time towards the showdown and a very intense period of BSB rounds now coming up over the next few weeks. So, Knock Hill and Mizano, all the action on Eurosport and the Eurosport player this weekend. And in the meantime, many thanks from me, Greg Haynes, and from Julian Ryder here in the Full Throttle Podcast. <laughs>